We'll hear argument first this morning in case 11-159, Astru versus Capato. Mr. Miller. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The Social Security Administration has reasonably interpreted the Social Security Act to provide that, as a general rule, a person seeking uh, to establish eligibility for child survivor benefits must show that he or she would have been able to inherit personal property from the decedent under applicable state intestacy law. That interpretation is supported by the text, structure, and history of the Act, and it comports with principles of federalism because it defers to state law on the determination of family status, which is a traditional subject of state regulation. It's reasonable and entitled to deference under Chevron. Now, the textual arguments in this case involve the interaction of three provisions of the Act. The first is Section 402D1, which is the basic uh, benefits-granting provision, uh, and that says that under certain conditions the child uh, of a wage earner uh, is entitled to benefits. Uh, And that provision has a cross-reference to a definition of child in Section 416E of the Act. 416E, which is reprinted at page 4A of the appendix to our brief, um, says that the the term child means, one, the child or legally adopted child of an individual, two, a stepchild under certain cases, uh, and three, a person who is the grandchild or step-grandchild of an individual. Now, I think the one thing that's immediately apparent from looking at that provision is that under anyone's reading, it's a little bit confusing because it uses the word child twice to mean two different things. Uh, that is, the first child um, is broader than the second because the first one includes the second uh, as well as uh, adopted child, stepchild, and so forth. Suppose a state legislature got the crazy idea that children born to married people during the, the time of the marriage shouldn't inherit under state intestacy law. Would that mean that they would be ineligible for survivors' benefits? Not necessarily, because uh, if somebody doesn't qualify under — and I should say at the outset that that is unlike the law of any state, either in 1939 or today. Uh, but what if they did — what if they did that? Uh, the, there, there are two alternative mechanisms that Congress added to the statute uh, in the 1960s to allow children who lack intestacy rights uh, to establish their eligibility. Those are 416H. Uh, 2B and 416H3. Uh, and 416H3 says that an applicant who is the son or daughter uh, of an insured individual but is not a child under, uh, under paragraph A, which is the reference to state intestacy law, uh, shall nevertheless be deemed to be a child uh, if there was an acknowledgement in writing uh, that the child was, uh, that the applicant was uh, the son or daughter or there was a court decree for support. Um, so I, those, I think are, those are obviously meant to deal with with uh, children whose parents are not married. That, that's right. And the, the reason for that is that, in fact, uh, under the law of every state, both in 1939 and today, uh, children whose parents are married uh, do have state uh, — do have intestacy rights. But I, I think what, what the provision I, I just referred to illustrates uh, is that the term child in the statute is a legal term of art. Uh, because if you were just looking at the ordinary meaning of the word child, the concept of an applicant who is a son or daughter uh, but is not a child uh, well, would be completely means nonsensical. Maybe it means something else. Maybe it means that to the Congress that initially enacted the predecessor of this provision, a child was a child. They knew what a child was. And the uh, type of child that I mentioned earlier was a child. There wasn't n- need for any definition of that, and they, they never had uh, any inkling about the situation that has arisen in this case, just as they had no inkling that any state would go off and take away uh, intestacy rights for children born to married people during the course of their marriage. Well, I mean, I, I think — I think those are probably accurate factual claims about what Congress was thinking, but had Congress wanted uh, the, the way that Congress chose to make sure uh, that the children of married parents uh, could establish their eligibility was by looking to state intestacy law, because Congress knew that under state intestacy law, uh, those children had such rights. Isn't there something sort of bizarre about your reading? Because uh, Congress in the E section sets up very specific definitions about stepchildren and grandchildren and even step-grandchildren. 
in which state intestacy law is not referenced. But you're saying that as to the largest category, the category in which 90 percent of people are going to get benefits, uh, there Congress sent us all off to state law. Well, it, it, that's, that's what Section 416H says. Uh, Section 416H sets out a rule. Well, suppose uh, I'm not so convinced that H is as clear as you think it is, because there are two sentences of, of, of Section H. I'm just asking you to provide a reason why Congress would have uh, specified everything about what, how you get benefits for stepchildren and grandchildren and stepchildren, but not for the main category of people at issue. Well, I, I, think, I think it's because, with respect to the main category of people at issue, you know, the, the question Congress was asking is, what is the class of people who are likely to have a sufficiently close relationship uh, to the insured person, uh, such that it would be appropriate to provide benefits uh, to replace the loss of support that they would likely be getting uh, during the person's life? And if you, you look at what is the body of law that defines that class of people who have a close relationship uh, with someone, uh, it's state intestacy law. And state intestacy law sets out um, sort of clear, easy-to-apply rules uh, for the, the distribution of estates. Well, they don't Miller, there's, do. there's one provision in H that's puzzling, and maybe you can tell me what it means. It's in H2A, and it's the last sentence of A. It says, applicants who, according to state law, would have the same status relative to taking intestate personal property as a child shall be deemed such. What person is that referring to? Someone who is not a child but has the same status as a child? That's right. The, the, the first sentence sets out the general rule that you look to state law for the definition of child, and the second sentence uh, says that people who uh, do not have the status of children but nonetheless have the inheritance rights of children shall be deemed children. And as a practical matter, the, the people that that applies to uh, are people who have been equitably adopted. Uh, there's a doctrine in the law of many states where you have an adoption — or you have an agreement to adopt, but not yet a completed legal adoption. Uh, in, in that circumstance, the would-be adoptee uh, does not have the status of a child for all purposes or, or even necessarily for all inheritance law purposes, but can take property uh, from the adopting parents. Uh, so that's who would be covered by that sentence, and it, that's now addressed in the regulations. Uh, at, uh, for Anyone else or just that category? I, I, think, I think that is the, the, the most likely category that it would apply to. Yeah. Counsel. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh, you said earlier that the state intestacy law provides clear rules, but I assume that's not always the case, particularly with all this new uh, technological advancement. There must be situations where you can't tell what state intestacy law provides. And what does the Social Security Administration do in that case? The Social Security Administration uh, tries to apply state law. And uh, — You know, my hypothetical is that there's no clear answer. I mean, let's take a situation where this type of uh, uh, reproduction is is new, and the state legislatures haven't had a chance to decide whether they want to recognize uh, the the offspring for state intestacy law or not. What would — SSA do? Well, I mean, the SSA does the best that it can to, to figure out what the state law is, and then on review in the district court, uh, you know, the, the district court is able to review that. And there have been cases in which district courts have certified questions uh, to state courts. And, and I think, actually, the, the fact that there are those difficult questions that can come up uh, in some of the cases particularly involving assisted reproductive technology uh, really illustrates one of the virtues uh, of leaving it to the states rather than uh, as respondent would have it, uh, effectively forcing SSA and then the federal courts on review of its decisions to create a, a sort of federal common law of parentage uh, to resolve all of those uh, very difficult questions. It was in my memory, and it's been a while, um, that some states, if not all, and that's what I was going to ask you, basically deem any child born during a marriage to be a child of the marriage, whether it's a biological child or not, so that if a mother has had a relationship outside of marriage, the married parent's still responsible for that child. That would take care of, I think, a great number, wouldn't it, of the new technology births that occur without 
perhaps the input of, of, of one of the bi- — the biological input of one of the parents. That, that, that's right. And, that, in fact, there are statutes in a number of states uh, addressing the uh, question of the — yes. Yes. My question was, do all states have similar rulings? And for those that don't, what happens to a child that's been born with — as Justice Roberts said, that this is chief said, with new technology, what happens to that child in terms of their definition of whether they'll be considered a child for Social Security purposes? I, I can't speak with certainty to all of the states, but I, I believe that that is the, the, the general rule. So I, I'm not aware of any, any states where uh, when you have a married couple using donor, donor sperm, uh, that the child would not be deemed uh, the child. My impression is that uh, I'm not sure it's by statute, but just by uh, judicial decision, uh, a child born in the marriage is a child of the marriage unless, unless the child is repudiated by, uh, by, by the father. I think that is, that is the general rule. And I, and I think one thing that that illustrates, of course, is that respondents' um, definition, which is also the Court of Appeals' definition, uh, of what a child is, and the definition that uh, they urge uh, the Court to apply in 416 is um, the biological <coughs> child of married parents. And not only is the, the, does the married part of that not comport with the ordinary understanding of child, because, of course, in ordinary usage, whether somebody is a child uh, doesn't depend on whether uh, their parents are married, uh, but the biological part uh, also does not comport with legal usage, uh, because both in 1939 and today, uh, there are many cases in which uh, biological parentage is not determinative of legal parentage, uh, both for the reason that we were just talking about and then uh, uh, also for another example is uh, when you have an adoption, uh, a child who has been adopted by somebody else uh, is no longer legally the child of his biological parents. Would, would you uh, tell me if, if the Capato twins are both found to be, be children um, within the meaning of the Act, Will they meet the dependency or the deemed dependency requirements, or is that a backup argument that you have? Or? We, we, the, that, that would be a question for the agency to address in the first instance. The agency has not addressed that question in the administrative process here, so we are not. It, it uh, was addressed in the Ninth, in the ninth Circuit decision, the, wasn't it? The, the, that's right. And the, the, the Ninth Circuit uh, read the dependency provision of the Act to uh, say that any legitimate child uh, is deemed to be dependent, uh, and it then conducted an examination of um, legitimacy under California. You don't have a position on that here? Or you, you, you want that, that to be elaborated more by the agency? That, that, that's right. I, I mean, I, what I will say is, just speaking in general terms about dependency, uh, the statute creates a number of presumptions that allow um, basically any, any natural child, any child under the uh, that, that first that second child in 416E1, anyone who fits into that category is deemed to be dependent. Uh, So it it doesn't necessarily turn on on factual dependency, which is uh, obviously not present in a case. Rebuttable presumption or irrebuttable? Uh, The the presumption in favor of dependency for anyone who qualifies is is irrebuttable. Um, Well, you you rely only on uh, on that definition. The section is entitled Old Age and Survivors insurance benefit payments. And it also provides in D that uh, a child is entitled to the benefits if, among other things, C was dependent upon such individual, one, if such individual is living at the time the application was filed, two, if such individual has died at the time of death, or three, if such individual had a period of disability, et cetera, et cetera. It seems to me, is the word survivor used anywhere in the text of the statute except in the, in the heading of this section? I don't — it doesn't appear in any of the, the operative definitional provisions, but I, I would certainly agree with you that We use is. titles uh, to determine the, the, the meaning of uh, ambiguous provisions later, don't we? Yes, and I, and I certainly would, would agree with the, the idea that it is difficult to describe someone as a survivor. Uh, who was not alive at the time that nor, not, nor, nor would nor would he meet the requirements of C would he would he meet any of the requirements of C 
of, of D1C. The, the, the dependency requirement is defined in 402D3, and, and the, which unfortunately is not reproduced in, in the appendix, but which has the effect of making anyone who qualifies under 416H uh, be deemed dependent. Now, we don't think that the children in this case qualify under 416H, uh, so there's, there's no, not even any need to reach the dependency question. Why? Then what does, what does D1C do if, if it's all washed out by well, the, the dependency requirement is something that people who don't qualify under 416-H, people who are uh, adopted children or stepchildren or, or grandchildren, um, may in some cases have to make an individualized determination of, of — Well, it doesn't say it. It says every child, as defined in 416-E, has to meet that requirement. If such such child, the one defined in E. Right, but then, that then uh, 402-D3 says — uh, a child shall be deemed dependent uh, under certain circumstances that, that effectively track the, uh, the 416-H uh, analysis. Um, and I, I would, would refer you on that point to the, the agency's regulations defining dependency, which are uh, 404.361, uh, which say that any natural child, which is the term the, the agency uses for that second child in, in 416-E, uh, any natural child uh, is deemed dependent. No. Justice Scalia said that the statute was ambiguous. Is that your position? Is it your position that um, the definition of child is ambiguous and that we have to give the agency deference? Or is it your position that in context it's unambiguous? And even if the Social Security Administration wanted to extend benefits, it couldn't. In this in circumstances, I, I think that when the statute was initially enacted in 1939, with more or less the same structure of these provisions as we have now, uh, it, it might at that time have been ambiguous. But uh, the agency adopted an interpretation that is, again, in structure, materially identical to its current interpretation in 1940, and it has adhered to it ever since. And Congress has amended the statute. Uh, with the understanding that that was the interpretation that, that everybody had to go through state law uh, to qualify. And I think in light of that history, uh, at this point, uh, and the Congress's ratification of that understanding, uh, at this point the, the best view is that it is unambiguous um, and clearly resolves uh, the question in favor of the interpretation set out in the agency's regulations. Uh, Mr. Mr. Miller, can I take you back to 416E? I, I take it that you don't contest that for purposes of deciding the, this, uh, which stepchildren get benefits and which grandchildren get benefits, we're, we're just looking to federal law, that we don't look to state law on those questions. Is that correct? Yes, because th those terms uh, do not appear in 416-H. There's, there's no uh, instruction in the statute that those terms be defined by reference to state law as there is with respect to child. It, you know, I'm looking at some of these, the grandchildren one, for example, it says a person who is the grandchild, but only if, blah, blah, blah. It seems to have just sort of an understanding of what a grandchild is. In other words, it's not really defining a grandchild here. It's limiting a class of grandchildren with a pre-existing understanding of what a grandchild is. And so I'm wondering if that's true of grandchildren, why isn't it also true of children? Well, I, I should say I, two things about that. Then the first, specifically with respect to grandchildren, um, the agency is the agency defines a grandchild as the child within the meaning of the statute of a child, uh, and that's set out in the regulations at uh, 404.358. I'm sorry, so, the child of a child, but uh, child, what kind of child? Well, it's somebody, some, uh, somebody who would qualify uh, with uh, under. 416-H as a child. Uh, oh, so for grandchildren, the agency is also looking to state law? Indirectly. Uh, I mean, the grandchild is not expressly defined uh, in, in the Act, but uh, somebody who qualifies either under state law or you, you can also qualify as a, a stepchild or adopted child of someone who qualifies as a child uh, in that same sense. But um, I mean, I, 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 again, the, the, the lack of a uh, um, 
what's significant, I think, is that the lack of a, any other provision in the statute that tells you uh, how to define grandchild. I mean, the, the, the run of cases uh, that Congress was concerned about involved children. Uh, and for uh, — in explaining to the agency how to deal with those cases, uh, Congress gave explicit guidance, and that's to look to state law. Uh, in, in 416H. Now, now, respondent makes much of the fact that the uh, benefits granting provision, uh, 402D, uh, has an express cross-reference to the definition in 416E, but doesn't cross-reference uh, the definition in 416H. And I think there are two problems with that argument, the first of which is that 416H, uh, by its own terms, says that it applies for purposes of this subchapter, that is, throughout all of the parts of the Act that we're talking about here. So effectively, 416H incorporates itself uh, into the 416E definition, and there's no need for an express cross-reference. Uh, the second point uh, about that is that uh, the structure of the, the definitions here is very similar to the structure of the definitions used in defining other family relationships um, that are eligible for benefits. So under 402, in some of the other subsections of 402, there are benefits for the wife or husband or widower or widower uh, of an insured person. And just to take the benefits for a wife as an example, uh, in 402B, uh, the statute says that the wife, parenthesis, as defined in Section 416B of this title, close parent, under certain circumstances, can get benefits. If you look at the definition in 416B uh, of wife, it's very much like the definition in, in 416E, it says the term wife means the wife of an individual, and then it has some limitations. So if you were to take respondent's approach, you would just stop there and, and apply some sort of federal standard of figuring out whether people are married or not. Uh, but in fact, 416H, uh, in paragraph 1 of 416H, says um, an applicant is the wife or husband or widow or widower uh, of an insured person. Uh, if the state courts uh, would regard them as being married. So, uh, the, and in the 1939 Act, uh, all of those references to state law for, for wives and widows and children were all combined in one paragraph, so it was even clearer uh, that that was how the uh, statute worked, that you, you looked to state law for defining Council, family uh, I, I now have in front of me uh, H3. I don't th see how it has anything to do with whether the child was dependent under D, uh, D1C. Why do you think it has but, something to do with that? I'm sorry, the, 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 the definition of dependency is in, is in D3, uh, 402 D3, not, not uh, if you're, uh, 402 D3 uh, says uh, a, a child shall be deemed dependent upon his father um, unless uh, at such time, such time, such individual is not living with or contributing to the support uh, of such child, and the child is uh, neither the legitimate nor adopted child of the individual. So the effect of that is anyone who is a legitimate child uh, is deemed dependent under 402D3. Well, un uh, unless such individual was not living with or contributing to the support of such child, which is certainly the case here. The child had not yet been born. And other qualifications. The, the, the principal condition does not exist. Shall be deemed dependent upon his father or adopting father uh, unless at such time such individual, mother or father or adopted father, was not living with or contributing to the support of such child. How, how does that alter the dependency requirement of uh, D1C? You, you, because the, the child is deemed dependent unless uh, he was — I mean, I, again, since we, to be clear, we we think that the children in this case do not — are not eligible for child status. Uh, uh, because they don't meet the requirements of 416H. Well, that may well uh, be, but and if, if that is uh, ambiguous, why doesn't uh, — why doesn't uh, D1C, despite uh, — what is it, H3 or whatever the three we're, we've been playing with here, despite D3, 
despite that, it, it seems to me that they don't meet that requirement. That, that, that might well be the case. Our, our position is simply that that's not an issue that the agency has addressed, uh, and that would be a matter for the agency to resolve uh, in the first instance if this Court were to disagree uh, with us on the, the definition of, of child. Um, <clears throat> I, I re- referred a minute ago to the, uh, the, the 1939 Act and, and the structure uh, of that Act, and uh, I think that that's very instructive because, uh, again, the, the, the uh, way that the provisions were arranged in the 1939 Act, as we set out in our brief, uh, were the same uh, for, for present purposes um, as they are today. And Congress, when it amended the Act in the 1960s to allow certain non-marital children uh, to be eligible for child status, uh, recognized that that was the case, recognized the Commission's interpretation that uh, everybody had to go through 416-H and establish their eligibility under state law, and it chose to make express exceptions uh, to the requirement of state law for, for those children. Uh, no such uh, exception applies here. If I could reserve the remainder of my time. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Mr. Rothfeld. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Uh, if I can, I'll start with a question that, that Justice Sotomayor asked about the ambiguity or not of the statute. And we think that, in fact, the statute is not ambiguous at all. We think that it unambiguously dictates the reading that, that we advance. Um, and it's useful, I think, in addressing the case to recognize that it presents essentially two issues. One is whether all of the categories of applicants for child survivor benefits that are defined to be children in the statutory definition of child, Section 416, uh, qualify for child benefits without reference to state law, as we submit. If they do, then the second question is whether the the children in this case, the Capato twins, fall within one of the categories of children so so defined. And we think that they very clearly do. Congress said expressly that every child as defined by Section 416E shall receive benefits so long as they satisfy certain criteria that are not an issue in this case. Section 416E, to which Congress has expressly directed us in determining who is a child eligible for these benefits, defines a child to be, one, child or adopt a child, two, a step. Excuse me. Could you tell me what purpose 416H serves in this statute? We think, um, if given that you believe that 416E is self-sufficient unto its own. We think that Section 416E is sufficient as to the children I define to be a child within that statute. As the child who should receive. So what's the purpose of H? And and our understanding of who falls within the Section 416E, E1 definition of child is the natural child, the biological child of married parents. So a child who was born during marriage but is not a biological child wouldn't qualify, even though they qualify under state law as a child. Well, that's the question of what H is designed to accomplish. We think that Congress enacted H for children whose parentage or parental relationships were unclear, which would principally have been children who were born outside of marriage, as to whom there was no presumption. So with this, let's assume Ms. Caputo remarried, but used her deceased husband's sperm to, um, to birth two children. They're the biological children of the Caputos. Uh, would they qualify for survivor benefits even though she's now remarried? Well, I, I think that's an interesting and more difficult question than, than we, what we have here. I, I think that the answer may well be yes, and, and I think that the situations like that can arise really in, in outside of the IVF context, sort of related well, situations. You see, a situation like that is what is making me uncomfortable because I don't see the words biological in this statute. I don't see the word marriage directly when th- within the, the definition of child. So where do I draw them from? Well, where uh, do let me, I, let me answer, I answer, answer both of those questions. As to where marriage comes from, I think from a number of sources. One is the point that was raised by, by Justice Alito and Justice Kagan, that at the time Congress enacted the statute in 1939, the overwhelming majority of children in the United States, more than, more than 90 percent, it was actually more than 95 percent, were the children of married parents. And so when Congress — That would be true under state intestine law. Well, but but simply as to what Congress had in mind when it said a child is a child, and and you ask where marriage comes from in the statute, 
think when Congress said a child is a child, as I think Justice Alito's question suggested, it would have had in mind the paradigm of a child at that time, which was the, the But the words, you say this is plain meaning. It says the child of a wage earner, an individual. Child, it seems to me you are importing the term married because someone can be the undisputed child of a wage earner who is unmarried. So it's not a question of disputed versus undisputed. A wage earner can have a child undisputed that the wage earner is the parent, but the wage earner is not married. Well, let me say two things about that. And first, to continue the question of, of where marriage comes from, there is a textual reference to marriage, which appears in Section 416H2B, the companion to the intestacy provision upon which the government relies. But I thought we weren't supposed to look to H at all. I mean, your thesis is E covers it, but, but, and there's no reason to refer to H. But, but I think H reflects what Congress had in mind in the statutory definition, because in, in the provision that I'm referring to, Congress said that if the parents went through a form of marriage that was defective in some sense, Nevertheless, the child would be deemed to be a child, which tells us that marriage, A, was a significant part of what constitutes childness as defined. I don't, I don't, I don't look, when Congress says child, child means child. And, and the mere fact that, that Congress wrote that at an age when most children were indeed children of married people doesn't change the word child. I mean, we, we, we don't we go back and say, well, Congress often uses words that go beyond what, uh, what their immediate concern is, and here they use the word child. But, but as, as you want us to probe their mind and say, well, since 90, 90 percent of all children were children of, uh, of married people, that's what they must have meant by child. I just don't think that follows at all. Well, Ch- child means child. If I may, right, Congress wrote a federal definition of child. And as, as Mr. Miller acknowledged in his opening argument, when Congress defined child, it defined child to include a number of things. The first thing that it defined was a child is a child or adopted child, and then stepchild, grandchild, stepgrandchild. Congress used the word child to have a particular meaning because it said a child is a child and other things. The other things that it mentioned. But, but were, Mr. Rothfeld, I guess the question is when it says a child is a child, does it mean a child is a child born in wedlock or a child is just a child? And we know that Congress knew how to distinguish between the two because Congress distinguished between the two in this very act, in the dependency provisions. It talks about the legitimate child of such individual. Well, here it didn't add that word. It just said the child. But I think the reason it did that, I mean, as again, as Mr. Miller said, Congress used the word child in two senses. It used the word child in the generic sense. Everyone who qualifies for child benefits is a child. So it said a child is, in that sense, a child, adopted child, stepchild, so forth. Uh, in the dependency section, Congress is referring to all children, all children in that, in the generic sense, everybody who qualifies for benefits as a child. And therefore, Congress had to distinguish between what we say it meant when it said a child is a child, natural child of, of, of married parents. Are, are there any other statutes that you can point to around this time which support the notion that when people said child, they meant child within a legal marriage? I, I can't point you specifically to that because I think it was clear when Congress used the word child that that's what they had in mind as, as, as a generic matter. Um, as I suggested, when — I'm sorry, you, you can't point to anything because it's so clear? In a sense that that's right. If, if everyone knew what the word meant, the word child was used to, to define, I think, the category uh, that people would have had in mind when they thought of a child in, in the legal sense. Mr. I, Mr. Rothfield, don't you run into a problem, perhaps not in 1939, but since then, this Court has had a number of decisions that deal with uh, the distinction between the children born in and out of wedlock, and in some of those cases, it has held that the distinction between the two is unconstitutional, that there are no illegitimate children. All children are legitimate, whatever their parents may be. That, that, that is true, but I think the question is, what was the intent of Congress when it wrote this statute? Yes, but if we, if we are going to apply those equal protection decisions to this statute, well, that, that, that may suggest that 
an unfavorable application of the statute to children born out of wedlock would be unconstitutional. But the question of whether or not Congress intended to provide benefits. Well, I suppose the question is, aren't you at the very least getting us into a situation where we should interpret the statute the government's way because of constitutional avoidance concerns? I think that the contrary is true. I think that you should interpret it our way because the, the, the government's application sort of disfavors children who are born through, you know, artif- through, through assisted means uh, by its incorporation of state laws. Oh, it disfavors children who are born after the father has died, which is in accord with the title of the section, Survivor's Benefits. But I what's issue here? What's at issue here is is not whether uh, children that have been born through artificial insemination get benefits. It's whether children who are born after the father's death get gets benefits. But 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 I, but I think that I, I suspect the reason that, that Mr. Miller was resisting your questions on that point is that there, there is no question that children who are born or who are conceived naturally in the in the marriage and are born after the father's death are deemed to be dependents and receive benefits. That, that has been the consistent position of the agency, and we think that that's clearly right. So I, I don't think that the fact that the child was born after death says dispositively that they were not dependent upon. As to what your definition of child is, is it just a biological offspring? Is it limited to a biological offspring born of a particular marriage, but in what context? Because we go back to Justice Ginsburg's question of what happens if the, uh, of the, if the decedent is the mother. There's no question that she bore this child. Married or unmarried, does it matter? Um, does marriage matter only if it's the father that's the decedent? What is your — If if there's a sperm donor, does any offspring that sperm donor have qualify? No, we we think not, because we we think what Congress had in mind when it said in the first part of Clause 1 of the definition of child is the child, the natural child, and I use natural as distinct from adopted child or stepchild who are dealt with separately in the statute, which is why we think it is clear that Congress is there talking about natural children, biological children. The natural children of married parents, which we, as I say, the reason we think. So a mother who's unmarried who bears a child, this child's not automatically covered. We think that as Congress wrote the statute in 1939, that's correct. And that child would then have been referred to the intestacy provision upon which the government relies. And. Oh, so there are situations in which you think those provisions should govern. Yes, absolutely. We, We think that those provisions were added as an additive provision, as a mechanism for children who do not qualify for the definition to be deemed a child. This is what was not clear to me. So you're, you're not arguing that child has just one natural meaning. We, we argue that Congress used the word child. In whatever meaning you could give it. We — I wouldn't say that. I, I think that when Congress said a child is a child, which is the provision of the statute we were referring to. It was distinguishing the child from the adopted child and the stepchild, and we think that they were doing it in the context of marriage, because, A, that was the paradigm of family relationship at the time. B, we think the reason — what Congress was very concerned with accomplishing in the statute was guaranteeing certainty in the parent — in parentage and the parental relationship. And it set up a system of proc because in 1939 there were no genetic paternity tests. There was no — it was impossible to be absolutely scientifically certain as to who the — at least in, as who the father was. Congress set up a series of proxies to establish whether or not the applicant for child benefits was, in fact, the child. The principal one of those was the marital relationship, because in 1939, as I think Justice Scalia's question suggested, there was a very strong, virtually per se conclusive presumption that a child born in marriage was the biological natural child of both the father and the mother of the married couple. And so the existence of the marriage was a way of establishing in 1939 dispositively that the child was the child of the parents, the child of the survivor, uh, of, of the insured whose eligibility for benefits are being invoked here. Mr. Rothwell, I'm curious why you didn't argue a different theory, which is that E refers to all biological children, whether in marriage or outside of marriage, and then H is set up for cases in which biological status is contested. I mean, what would you think of that theory? Well, if we would certainly embrace it if the Court were — Well, why didn't you argue it? 
Uh, see, we, we think that we were arguing essentially a, a sort of a subset of that theory. Our, our sense of what Congress was up to was that it wanted to assure certainty, as I just said in response to the previous question, in establishing parentage. And the principal ways in 1939 that Congress could do that was by, A, invoking the existence of a parental relationship, which established sort of as a per se matter that the, the, the children born within the marriage were the children of each of the married — each member of the married couple. Uh, for parents — children who did not fall into that category, there was this additive provision, Section H, which provided a mechanism for doing it. And establishing that state intestacy law would recognize this child as the child of — typically as it was going to be the paternity that was contested, the, the child of the father — each established a mechanism for doing that. So I think that we are getting to the same place that but you what if, suggest. What if the children — well, I don't want to — the Caputo twins were conceived four years after the death in this case? Would your argument be the same? I, I think that our argument would be the same, but, but as a practical matter, almost all of these cases involve children who were born relatively soon. And why is that? Why, why would they all in, uh, involve children born relatively soon after? I, I, they don't necessarily have to, but I think the practical reason why they do is that it's often the case that, that the surviving mother has children to uh, produce a family sibling for or an already existing child, as was as — was So there's <laughs> no reason it couldn't take place four years after? There, there is no reason. That's correct. So what happens if the biological mother remarries or something and then goes through this process? Does the child get double survivor benefits or, or — well, it, which, which I assume you would argue that in that case the child is eligible through two different routes. Potentially, that, that's that's correct. There are rules in the act that prevent double recovery of survivor benefits, and so I don't think that would be an issue that would arise here. Mr. Rothfeld, these children were born 18 months after the insured wage earner died. If we look to other categories of children, say stepchildren. And there's also one for adopted children. For stepchildren, they qualify only if they had that status no less than nine months before the wage earner died. And adopted children is also a limitation. The stepchild and the adopted child, it could never be any question of being born 18 months later. They wouldn't qualify. There is a time limit for the other children. And if Congress had thought about this problem, maybe you would have put a time limit on this, too. Well, I I think that the question that the Court has to confront here is, is Congress wrote a federal definition of the word child. And sort of the first question in, in the case, I think, is whether we are correct in our understanding that when Congress wrote this definition, all applicants for child survivor benefits who fall within that category, those defined categories, qualify. And then we have to if — if the answer to that is yes, and so children, as defined in Clause 1 of the definition, which we think that the Capato children do, uh, whether or not all children so defined qualify for benefits without regard to state intestacy law. If we are right about that, then that raises the question, what is the meaning of child in the — in the statute, and we think that the question is what you haven't mentioned the text that suggests you're not right, which is right in H, which says in determining whether an applicant is a child of an insured, the commissioner shall apply such law as intestacy law. Okay, that's what it says. Now, how do you get out of that? Be- because because you say, well, there's an implicit exception. No, no, that's, that's not You know what you're saying, that that doesn't apply. And so I've listened carefully to your reasons for saying why H doesn't apply when its language seems to say it does apply, and I'm not sure why it doesn't apply. I mean, because, I suppose because. that two parents have lived together for six years and four months in State X, and they have a child. Fine. The father dies. Were they married? They never went through a ceremony. Is there a common law marriage? Might it depend on the state? You know the answer in every state? My answer is you don't know. And I don't know. And therefore, we have to look to the law of the state. 
in order to see whether that E is satisfied. Now, we have to look to it to decide if they're married. Even you say that. So what Congress did is it found a pretty good shorthand way of saying where you look. We're not going to worry about six years and two months. We're just going to look at their intestacy law. That's, as I read it, what it seems to say. I've been listening to you, and I don't see how you're going to save us from even worse problems, particularly when I started looking at the state of the uh, uh, artificial insemination and so forth, uh, and every state has uh, a dozen different variations. There are uniform acts. There are things you have to acknowledge in writing. It's a very complicated subject, and 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 that's why I'm uh, rather hesitant to read it the way you want. But I want you to reply to well, that. Well, the, the answer to the first sentence of Section H, if that were the only thing in the statute, I think that you would be right. But there's a second sentence to H, which says in in applying state intestacy law. The, the commissioner is supposed to look at the status of an applicant and determine whether or not the status of the applicant is the same as that of a child. And if so, the applicant is Where is that sentence? That appears in — Is it the bottom of the paragraph? It's the bottom of the paragraph. Yeah, it, All right. It says applicants who, according to such law, would have had the same status relative to taking intense state property as a child or parent shall be deemed such. And that, so? But as a child, what is it, — it requires a comparison to someone who is a child. Child is defined in Section 8. If, if, if — I think the problem with the government's interpretation of the first sentence of that — of Section 8 is that it makes the, the statute I've, circular. I haven't found the sentence you're talking about. Where is the it? Bottom of in the bottom of what? Page it what? is at page 9A of the, the, government, the appendix to the government's brief. It's sort of like I used to — there is no board of tax — sorry, I won't go into that, but it's because they use the word deemed. Is that right? Well, that's the heart of your argument. That, that's our explanation for what Congress is up to in the statute. It, 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 okay. it was an additive provision that says that if you are the same — and I think this is an important point, Justice Breyer — if you are the same as a child, you are deemed to have child status. You can't — Mr. Rothwell, why can't one just say, well, first sentence, who's a child? Look to state law. Second sentence, when state law treats other people as children, you should treat them as other — as children, too. So the two sentences can cohere fine. For children, look to state law, and also look to state law to see who they treat just like children. But I, I think that that is not a plausible reading of, of the text, Justice Kagan. The obvious well, practical thing is, is that, 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 you know, once you get beyond this and the child wasn't even — if he's conceived, or what the father could do, couldn't he just write a note and say, this is my child, even if it's conceived later, and then wouldn't he fall within one of these other exceptions, the exception for uh, being acknowledged? Uh, he, he, he would not. The, child, the father here did, in fact, write such a note. But, but I think He has acknowledged in writing that the applicant is his son or daughter. What about that one? I, I think that the problem is that has to be during the life of the father. Does it? He doesn't say it. I mean, it seemed to me easier to work with that one than the one you're trying to work with, but I, I don't know. You're the — but anyway, what I'm worried well, about I, here, I, I, Well, I, I don't want to argue against my, my position. No, no, I know. I know. But, but, okay, what I'm actually worried about and want you to address is I just see if we were to adopt what you say. Uh, what they're concerned about is many different applicants coming back later. That's what state intestacy is concerned about and you don't really know who their parents is. Another thing is there already are children who are eating up all of the money, and then some new person shows up, and you have to take the money away from the other children in order to give it to this new child. Uh, and all the time you don't know if that's what the parent who is dead really wanted. And so that's why the states have gone into all kinds of writing requirements. And, and you want us to sort of, applying this old law to new technology, just overlook those complications? Well, uh, Congress wrote a, a federal definition of child, and it's not an extraordinary thing for Congress to write a statute that has language that applies in certain circumstances and the world changes and new developments require application of the statutory text to those new, de new developments. If our reading of the statute is correct, if what, if what we think that Congress had in mind when it wrote this statute was that it wanted to set in place categories of applicants for child benefits as to whom parentage, in the relevant sense, could be determined with certainty. And it did that by focusing on the status of the marital relationship between the parents, and it did it by providing an alternative basis in, in Section H. Well, that would be fine if the statute said what you claim it said. 
It says a child is a child of a wage earner. And you have to import these things that Congress didn't say to get to what you claim is a plain meaning. But what do you do with the, the sentence in H2A that says, in determining whether an applicant is a child of an insured individual, for purposes of this subchapter, the subchapter is not for purposes of H, but for purposes of the entire subchapter, which would include E. But, and I think actually that is a helpful point for us, uh, Justice Ginsburg, because in determining whether an applicant is a child for purposes of the subchapter, it's referring to the use of the word child in the generic sense, in, in the sense when, when Congress said a child is defined to include people who fall in these various categories of children. So everybody — How could it do that when the rest of the sentence says, to determine whether an applicant is a child for purposes of this subchapter, the commissioner shall apply the state law of intestacy? But but I think that that these two sentences have to be read together as accomplishing the same thing. When when I think what the — it's saying that in making the determination whether or not a child qualifies for child benefits, uh, that the, the commissioner, applicants who according to such law would have the same status relative to taking intestate personal property as a child shall be deemed such. I think one can't apply the statute without knowing who a child is, uh, because it, it is directing the commissioner to engage in a comparison. It's directing the, com- the commissioner to say, does this applicant have the same status? Well, that's exactly child? right, Mr. Rothfeld, but you have two choices. In the second sentence, you do have two groups, and one has to be compared to the other, which is children. The question is, are children described by the first sentence of that, or are children described by the E section? So you're just reading the first sentence out of the statute and saying that the second sentence totally subsumes the first sentence, and we have to go back to E. But the first sentence exists. It says, who are children? Children are who they are under state law. No, and and, and I I think that what it's telling the commissioner to do is to determine whether or not when an applicant who does not fall within one of the defined categories in Section E applies for benefits, the commissioner is to determine whether or not that child has the same status relative to state law law as the child as defined in the definitional section. I mean, Congress, as I say, Congress — said expressly that a child, as defined in Section 416E of the statute, qualifies for benefits. And so it's, it, I think it establishes a federal standard as to what, what a child is for purposes of the Act. The Court has to determine what that standard means to apply it to any particular child. Counsel, under Chevron, you lose if the statute is ambiguous. Is there any reason we shouldn't conclude, based on the last hour, that it's at least ambiguous? Well, it's a mess. <laughs> I think the problem is that we are dealing with new technologies that Congress didn't in- develop, what was, wasn't in- anticipating at the time. I think had, one of the questions that was suggested to my, my friend, Mr. Miller, by, by Justice Alito, I think, that if a child who was the, who, in 1939, who was the, the, the child of married parents, natural child of married parents, sought benefits under this statute, and they were denied because some state developed an aberrant law of intestacy and said that such a child would not qualify, would not be deemed to be the child of their parents. I think that that would have been regarded as clear misreading. How do you think that Congress thought of either of these situations as real possibilities? Do you really think that, that the 1939 Congress or even the one that passed the later statute ever thought that a state would disinherit a naturally born, all naturally born children? or that children could be born 18 months, four years, 50 years later. Well, they weren't thinking of either. So the question becomes, given the language of H that says, define child this way throughout the subchapter, why shouldn't we give that directive its plain meaning? That's really the argument that you have to convince us of. Well, if we have to convince you not to give the statute of plain reading, then, then we are not going to prevail. I certainly recognize that, that the plain meaning has to control. And, and as I suggested at the outset, the reason we think we prevail is that the plain meaning of the statute, as was written in 1939, as it would have been understood by the 1939 Congress that adopted it, was that 
the natural children of married parents, the paradigm of the situation of the child at that time, would fall within this category. Now, it is certainly true, as you say. Is that because every state law recognized them as such as well? Correct? Well, and every state law — I mean, I, I put it the other way. Every state law recognized them as such because that was the way in which children were understood. The meaning of the term child was understood at the time. And, and but when we're this, going this, back this, to 1939 understanding, wasn't it also understood that the marriage ends when a parent dies? Well, so there wouldn't be a child that's born 18 months after the father died wouldn't be considered a child of a marriage because the marriage would have ended. Well, I, I think that one has to look at what the Congress at the time — I guess I would put it this way. If, if the Court were to accept our view that Congress had in mind the children of married parents, the question is whether any particular child falls within a box Congress would have regarded as the marital box or the, or the non-married box. Situations like this simply could not have arisen in 1939. Congress would not have specifically, as Justice Sotomayor said, Congress would not have specifically had in mind, contemplated the, the question of posthumous conception. Mr. Rothfeld, I know that the government didn't rely on it, but just to satisfy my curiosity, how, how can this child satisfy the requirements of D1C uh, with regard to dependency upon the father? I, I, I guess — Two responses to that. One, as Mr. Miller said, this issue, that issue has, was remanded to be addressed by, by yeah, I understand, but, but, but I, that, the, the answer, the answer that, that why, that's connected with this other issue. The, the, if, the answer that why, why we think, and if I may, Mr. Chief Justice, answer. The reason that we think we would prevail on that question is because, as Mr. Miller said, it, Congress created a, a irrebuttable presumption that the child of um, the legitimate child of, of a parent uh, is deemed to have been dependent upon that parent at the time of the parent's death. And thank I, you, counsel. Thank you very much. Mr. Miller, you have four minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Since 1940, the Social Security Administration has consistently interpreted the Act to require all natural children to establish their eligibility under 416-H either by uh, establishing that they can inherit under state law or by showing that they qualify under one of the express exceptions. Mr. Miller, what what do you think is wrong with the alternative theory that that, that I suggested, that that E is all biological children in a marriage, not in a marriage, doesn't matter, and that H is designed to deal with situations in which biological status is contested? Well, I — the principal problem with that, I think, is that it lacks — it's not supported by the text of what uh, 416H says. But why do you think that? Be- what would you point to in H that is inconsistent with the theory that I just gave you? Uh, I-, I would point to, to H2B and H3, both of which are, are the exceptions uh, to allow people to qualify when they can't establish state intestacy rights, and both of which refer to someone who is the son or daughter of the insured person but is not and is not deemed to be the child. So if biological parentage were were what was determinative under E, and if you only looked um, at H when there was some question about biological parentage, the idea of someone who is a son or daughter uh, but isn't a child uh, would make no sense. Um, And so to give effect to those meanings, uh, to give give effect to those provisions, to give them meaning, um, uh, 416H has to have... um, broader application than just in cases of disputed biological parentage. Uh, it is, in fact, the gateway uh, through which everyone has to pass, and that's how the, the agency has, has so regarded it. Um, the, the final point I would make is simply that uh, even if the statute were silent on whether to look to state law, it would be appropriate for the Court to hesitate, I think, before uh, creating what, in effect, is a, a body of federal common law about parental status. Uh, here, of course, there's an express textual command uh, the other way. Um, and, and it would be particularly inappropriate uh, to create, as respondents are urging, a federal rule uh, that goes well beyond what any state would allow uh, in the context. Why doesn't the last sentence of, uh, uh, what is it, H2A, show that Congress had in mind a certain idea of a a category of people who were indisputably children. I don't see how 
you can get around that, because it says what you're looking for under state law is to determine whether someone has the same status relative to taking intestate personal property as a child. I, I think the, the answer to that is, is the one suggested by Justice Kagan uh, a few minutes ago, and that is that you have to read the first and the second sentences together. Uh, and the first sentence sets up a general rule that you're looking to state law. Uh, and then the second uh, is about people who would have the same status as children under state law. Uh, so the, the basic background definition in, in either case is coming from state law. So if the person is a, a child, you have a, a, a applicants who, according to state law, have the same status uh, as a child, that person has that status because the, ch- the person is a child, and then the person is deemed to be a child. It seems very clear that that, that shows that, that H, that this provision is, is uh, directed to people that Congress in 1939 did not think fell within this paradigm of a child. The, well, the, the second — maybe I may be misunderstanding you, but I, I, the, the, our, our view of what the second sentence does uh, is that it covers people who, who are not treated as children — who are not children under state law, uh, but nonetheless have the inheritance rights of children. So it's so principally the, the, in the case of equitable adoption, uh, those people uh, w- would have the status uh, of children. Thank you, Mr. Miller. Mr. Rothfeld. Case is submitted.